John. Long time no speak. How are we? <laughs> yeah, like at least 24 hours. I'm good. Um, so like we talked about, uh, I think that this week stuff we wrote about Israel and Palestine um, was – it was, I, I don't know. I don't want to say it was tough for either of us per se, but like mm-hmm. I think we both. I think it's fair to say that we both thought very carefully about whether we should attack this issue because of the feelings involved. And I don't know about your social media, but mine is just blown up with people who support either side. Um, but in the end, we decided to because, as we noted in the newsletter, you were a diplomat there for three years in Tel Aviv, um, and you had unique access to different kinds of information and um you know yeah had time to be in the place and really absorb what it was like so we thought Mm -hmm. we'd just do I I wanted to do a quick chat with you just to kind of get a little more info from you for my own edification but also for anybody who listens to our audio newsletter um so why don't you just sort of tell us a bit more about when you were there what the kind of regional what was going on at the time um in terms of the you know the history of it like what was going on when you were there and then what your role was in all of that. Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, thanks, John. I think the uh, newsletter this week probably lost us some some subscribers and maybe like picked up a few as well, depending on whichever side people or however people feel. So I was Mm -hmm. in Israel from 2015. So I arrived on Independence Day 2015 in uh, May until uh, the end of 2018, actually start of 2019 was when I actually left the country. Um, And my role there was uh, a political economic role within the Australian embassy, which covered the region. So I actually covered the Middle East from the Israeli perspective. So basically, my portfolio um, was most issues outside of the Palestinian issue. But that said, I think that I lived and breathed the issue every single day because there's not one day that you can kind of get by in Israel without being reminded so-and-so person is Israeli Arab, so-and-so person is Israeli Druze, or so-and-so is Palestinian Arab who had family in Gaza. And everything is sort of just, it's just sort of like seeps under your skin, right? Um, So I feel like in some ways, uh, by virtue of just being in Israel, you kind of just absorb um, and learn about the conflict through everyday activities. Um, And of course, within my work, you, um, in the regional sense, you had to cover a lot of what was going on in Palestine because the regional powers like Egypt and Jordan and also Syria and Lebanon all had roles to play in this conflict, which is something I think like doesn't get talked about enough, right? Because it's not just the Palestinian-Israeli issue, it's also a regional Middle East versus Israel issue um, or the Arab Middle East versus Israel issue. Yeah. Well, and on that, I think I saw, I think the news today, I saw that Israel fired artillery into Lebanon in response to some rockets that went from Lebanon into Israel overnight. So not only are they fighting a war on the Gaza front, they're now fighting neighbours to the north. So I think yeah. that's probably a good illustration of your point that it's it's kind of a, a super complex web of relationships and interrelationships and whatnot. Um, can, I, can I just uh, drill down on one thing I think you've kind of alluded to, that I, again, ignorant as I am on most things, I genuinely didn't really realize how many Arabs live in Israel, like yeah, how many absolutely. people who were from the former Palestinian kind of homeland, as it were, yeah. who are... Are they Israeli citizens? Are they do they participate in society? Is it segregated? Like, what what does that look like when you're actually living in 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 the country? 
the short answer is yes, they're Israeli citizens, the Israeli passport holders, um, and a lot of them are actually Israeli Arab Christians specifically because I think obviously I think Christians have been persecuted um, to a certain degree, like in the former Turkish Ottoman Empire there. Uh, but Israeli Arab citizens, uh, you know, they participate in the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Force, um, for a certain period of time. Huh. But that said, there is still, I think, a lot of, I wouldn't say systemic, but there's definitely a, 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 a prejudice against Israeli Arabs um, within Israel. So, like, they would be probably, and I don't know, I'm probably speaking out of turn here, and please feel free to edit this out if this is not, not appropriate, but they probably wouldn't be able to take the top brass, you know, levels in the Israeli military. There's always going to be some question about their loyalty to the country um but nominally they are very much part of the israeli society and i've been told by close israeli friends um and contacts of israeli arab friends that they actually are very proud to be part of the israeli nationhood so you know this is just anecdotal stuff but they see to have they they think that being part of Israel gives them more economic opportunities, uh, and that they have more freedoms as a woman, uh, and that you know they enjoy living in Israel. So this is that's I think one aspect that hmm. a lot of people don't really kind of hear much of as well. And of course that said, right. I'm, I'm taking yeah. the people who are yeah. living in Tel Aviv, which is one of the most like sort of liberal, progressive, and in some ways hedonistic cities in the world, you know, and very very. Um, all about free love, I guess. What I what I think is super interesting it, there is breaking down that idea that ev- like that these people and these um, groups of people, countries, religions are monolithic. Like that, oh, you're an Arab, so you must be pro-Palestine, which means right. you hate Israel, or, or you're, you're Israeli and you're Jewish, therefore you have. Uh, we've got a neat little box for you and here are your opinions and here's how you feel. But like what you've just said there is like, you've got Arabs who live in Israel. They're kind of in some ways excluded, but a lot of them are very proud to have more economic advantages and they they Mm -hmm. participate in the system of the Israel state, which is like, there's a lot of conflicting things there that I I don't think ever really make, uh, certainly not the mainstream media, but they just, they just don't make most of our brains when we think about it. Would would you say, Here's a here's a question again from my ignorance, and I, that's, I'm just going to claim ignorance in all of this. But would it be possible then, or would it be a situation that might happen? Um, you know, I've got Israeli friends who were in the IDF, and they sort of say, "Oh yeah, I used to have to go into places and you know search Palestinian homes when we thought there were terrorists hiding out or whatever as part of my patrols in where you know I presume in the West Bank." But mm-hmm. would it be possible that an Arab is an Arab Israeli in the IDF would be potentially going into the homes of relatives in Palestine? Yeah. Is that something that might happen? Yeah, absolutely. That's- it might happen. But the thing is, like, I think the IDF would be smart enough to kind of see the conflict of, in- right. conflict of interest there, right? I mean, as John, John, you and I have talked about Fowder, but you know one of the characters in there is an Israeli Arab who is one of the key yeah. playmakers in terms of sort of either you know, turning people into, on, in, onto the Israeli side or sort of negotiating with Hamas family members to try and turn them in. So th- that role, I think that even though he uh, is, he, they totally dramatize it, but I think that role is definitely um, there for Israeli Arabs. And I think it's, they're, it's, they're conflicted, right? It's sort of like any kind of um, 
ethnicity within a broader kind of nationhood, you'd always be questioned about your loyalties to the state. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's always that question mark. Yeah. But I would say that just on coexistence, I think this is something that's not talked about in the two-state sort of conversations, which is there are a lot of cities within Israel, Israel proper, and within sort of the occupied Palestinian territory within the West Bank that have a lot of peaceful, have peaceful coexistence between the Israeli Jewish population, Israeli Arab population, and the Palestinian populations who are there. And one of these cities is Akko, and this is the restaurant that I referenced to in um, my recommendation where uh, there's a restaurant called Uri Buri, and um, he's sort of been a really key playmaker in the city for just promoting coexistence. And um, there are a lot of those cities that are in Israel that I think just, you know, either people find that story boring and they want to keep going for a conflict angle or they just don't want to, don't want to cover it. Um, but that's, I think, a story that's not told enough. Um, I would just say that another yeah, thing, let's... go ahead, sorry. No, 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 please. I, I, you go ahead. I, I was going to say that another thing uh, that I don't think we managed, we talked about this, but we didn't manage to sort of get into our newsletter is that before the, um, intifadas and then the sort of subsequent, um, walls were built. And so this, this sort of borderlines, well, there was less freedom of movement for both peoples from each side. There were actually a lot of people-to-people interactions, you know, just on a human level between Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, and Palestinians. And I think that is a one thing that all my Israeli and Palestinian friends lament is the fact that they can't do that. They can't sort of pop down to Gaza, which was actually known to be a really great, like, surfing spot, had great fruit and vegetable, just uh, had great produce coming out of that area. And they no longer had that sort of human interaction, which means that you're sort of increasingly, there's this population or this generation of Israeli Jewish kids and um, Palestinian kids who don't have an understanding of the other side. And, you know, I think we mentioned this as like dehumanization of the other side and demonization of the other side. Um, And I think post Oslo Accords, after the sort of walls went up, that's when the sort of people to people element and that political will from people um, citizens really kind of, you know, just got lost somewhere in the politics. It's really wild. It's it's hard to really fathom from someone who's never been there or kind of, you know, it's intellectually understandable, but it's not really like I don't, I can't sort of emotionally yeah. understand what that would be would be like um contextualize for me oh god i, I gotta stop saying that word it's such a ten dollar word when you can just say tell me how it was tell me how it was like tell me tell me what was going on when you were there like what was the what was the kind of political situation was there yeah sure was there a war on or what was what was the situation so i think for my posting people joke that when you're in israel you're meant to have like in your three-year posting you're meant to have probably one summer war one election and then one sort of you know um, some kind of, uh, you know, society-wide meltdown. Um, so I, I think I managed to dodge all three. Uh, I got there shortly after the 2014. You're a good omen. War. I'm a good omen. As soon as I leave, things went to shit. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, that's not true. Uh, I went to, so I got there soon after the 2014 Israeli Gaza or Israeli Hamas war, which was called Operation Protective Edge. Again, John, we need to think about whoever comes up with these names. <laughs> um, but the it, it was actually you, you know exactly who comes up with that. It's like it's like some male sitting in a, like a war room, like oh, essentially. Yeah. 
like masturbating over like Command and Conquer games <laughs> yeah, or Protective Edge. And the one in two th- the one in two thousand and eight was like Operation Cast Lead. Yeah, <laughs> it's like all right, okay. Yeah, all right, mate. All right, Yoshi. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> I I I got there soon after the war ended, and I so so I think for both sides it was a period of reprieve because that war was really brutal, and it lasted for over I think like two months all throughout summer. Um, and so for Israel, that day of Independence Day, when I arrived, it was a really joyous celebration. And I think people were finally being able, you know, able to breathe and looking forward to economic recovery. Um, but on the other side, um, in Gaza, where actually I went into the Gaza Strip for work in uh, May or June 2015. And, you know, those photos that I shared, it was still the whole strip was still recovering from the damages of that war um and look putting aside the sort of discussions and merits of international law and sort of the law of war and what should have happened and what who hit what and all that um it was just tragic you know you had these buildings that were still crumbled um cement sort of pieces of cement and debris everywhere uh and you had these farmers who were just trying to sort of um have a sort of healthy crop of strawberries for the summer that they could, they could sell to Egypt and get on with their livelihoods. Um, and at the beach in Gaza, it was a really beautiful looking beach, but my tour, my guide, not my tour guide, so obviously it wasn't a tourism trip, said to me, um, don't, don't go in the water because that's open sewage, you know? And so I think that's the, the, the daily lives of people in, in Gaza is really grim. It is really grim. And I think that that's something, um, that after sort of the international media attention wanes uh, and, you know, refocuses elsewhere, um, you don't realise that these people are sort of still living in those conditions, uh, whereas Hamas, uh, the sort of Hamas operatives uh, are literally apparently, you know, smuggling in Mercedes-Benz cars uh, under those tunnels uh, that come through from Israel. Um, So I don't know. I mean... The period of my time there was like relatively normal in 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 sort of compared to other times, but I think in the con ten dollar word context in the sort of like normal I think like span of uh, times there it, it was normal compared to other like times of war, but it was still very tense because there was uh, one incident that was called the stabbing intifada, which happened in September twenty fifteen. Uh, when, you know, I think it was supposedly some lone wolves attacks uh, had inspired teenagers and sort of young random labour workers in Tel Aviv to take things, just any weapon they can find to go and stab people down the street. And so there was a series of stabbings that happened within Tel Aviv and other parts of the West Bank that I think for people who had been there for a period of time, I remember they sort of just shrugged it off and they were like, oh, well, this is nothing compared to the war. But I had just arrived there and I thought that was... (laughs) really terrifying you know to sort of just think that shocking, is, yeah yeah it's shocking it is shocking um but you'd come from the main streets of canberra i'd come from the main streets of that's right the you know roundabouts of of uh, of canberra uh where your biggest problem was turning off at the wrong roundabout you know and ending up in <laughs> in the wrong government circle um but yeah it was it was um it was a really surreal three years, I think, would, would, would just be the sort of way I would summarize it because there'd be mornings where I'd wake up and I think, you know, my former boss, Dave Sharma, had written about this and he had this app called Red Alert and we were all sort of um, encouraged to download it. And overnight there would just be sort of alerts to say, 
you know, the IDF had intercepted this terrorist attack that was being planned in the West Bank um, and foiled these attacks. Or there'd been rockets that had come overnight from uh, Syria or from Lebanon, which the Iron Dome, which is Israel's uh, missile defense system, had taken down uh, overnight. Um, and so just sort of initially kind of, you know, being so stressed out when whenever I saw those messages and then eventually kind of just adapting to that norm and thinking like, oh, okay, there was only one rocket last night as opposed to, you know, a barrage of rockets or there was only one incident that was intercepted mm. by Israeli Defense Force in the West Bank. And look, who knows how much of this is actually um, just sort of signaling to international uh, stakeholders who are in Israel that there were these you know, they lived under a heightened sense of security or how much of it is actually true when it was actually just sort of information being passed on, right? But you definitely adapted to sort of being mm. in a very tense uh, and sort of stressful environment, but you juxtapose that with the beaches and that wonderful lifestyle in Tel Aviv. So your body had this really strange sort of, I guess, polarized extremes of, um, you know, all your senses were heightened, your fears, your joys, your sort of excitement. So it was, yeah, it was a remarkable, surreal three years. Um, I could talk about this for like hours and hours. How long have you got um, for this call? I've got How much an hour. Have you got? Because I know you're a busy, a busy lady. No, 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 I've blocked off an hour. Okay, wonderful. So you've just described Tel Aviv, which, you know, we've got, I've still got friends, you've still got friends in Tel Aviv there who say, oh, you must visit. And I was supposed to visit last year before all of the, the COVID stuff. And, and perfectly honestly, the reason I wanted to visit is because it sounds like a really wonderful, fun, great, beautiful city. Now, we've got friends who I, I think they were actually visiting you potentially, um, who went to Jerusalem mm -hmm. and described to me that it's the weirdest place they had ever been, not in terms of like, you know, it's not like a weird place to the site, but just they could feel tension yeah. and like it was like, you know, you get off of, off the plane in Southeast Asia and you're like, oh, I can feel the humidity. Yes. You know, like you can yes. feel the tension in the air. And, right. and one very close friend of mine was like, I didn't like it. I could tell that something, even if nothing was going to happen, it felt like just around the corner, something bad was going to happen. Yeah. And I like, Israel's not a big country, right? So well, how far away is Tel Aviv from Jerusalem? And to have such a different vibe oh, is yeah, kind of no. wild. Absolutely. I mean, they used to joke that you needed a passport to get between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem because they were such completely different cities. And, like, I, I mean, in some senses that's true, right, because there are so many um, ultra-Orthodox and sort of religious and, you know, as we mentioned in the newsletter, Jerusalem is the epicentre of the three Abrahamic religions and so by virtue of that the people who sort of choose to live around there tend to be more conservative and um more sort of committed to that you know religious uh, cause of you know believing that they own jerusalem or that they you know the israeli jews or the arabs should own jerusalem so it was there's definitely a lot of tension and i think for one thing that um people a lot of people commenting on the israeli-palestinian conflict don't appreciate is just how small israel is i think you had just you know you had mentioned this um mm. before but at this thinnest point of israel it's 10 kilometers between the beach and the mediterranean sea and the west bank so that is like a tiny tiny bit of land right and then the distance between is uh, tel aviv and gaza is about 70 kilometers and the distance between tel aviv and jerusalem is 60 kilometers so that's like an hour's drive basically, or, or even less if you're honing it. But mm. I mean, that's for anyone to sort of really appreciate that. I mean, like, what is that in London? Honestly, like, what, what is that? That's like what, from 
from the center of uh, what Westminster to yeah, I yeah. think yeah, ten k ten k gets you from the center of London to like where most people who aren't millionaires live. Really. Right, um, right, you know, right. it's probably and like yeah, like a, a very very normal commute, I would say, like to the yeah. to the sort of the places where you can have a, a garden in London. Right, but but like seventy kilometers, right? In Sydney, it's probably job, like. Right? like yeah, people go for a 10k jog and you're saying that that's the West Bank to the to the water <laughs> across Israel. Right. <laughs> right. People, not me, but some other people. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> that's, four days. that's not the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. But that's I think part of the reason why it's so tense going back to what you're saying about, you know, um your friend's observation is that Jerusalem, the old city in itself, I think the rate the size of it and I'm going to look it up now. Um is what like 0.35 square miles 0.9 square kilometers so so let's say like one square kilometer so if you can imagine the amount of sort of religious religion and history and sort of political tensions that are like pent up around that old city and people live in the old city you know this isn't some like tourist right. bazaar that um like the, you know like the vatican or sort of some other palace that you go into people live there and within so you can turn a corner and accidentally end up in the armenian quarter or the uh jewish quarter or the you know ultra ultra orthodox jewish quarter or the arab quarters so it's um you know, it's it's that's definitely something that I think pervades the city of Jerusalem. There's a sense of heaviness there, uh, both political and religious. Um, and you know, I think anecdotally, I know that uh, one of my <laughs> old friends who was visiting had gone decided to go for a walk at night in the old city, and we were staying in the Austrian hospice there. Um, and he ended up sort of getting lost. Uh, in the city and had a total meltdown because it was really scary. It was really scary. It was the middle of the night. The streets are old and winding mm. and uh, there's no street lights. Um, but I think that's a probably a good analogy for if you sort of just kind of lose your way in that religion, religious sort of uh, discussion, you can, you can end up very lost and not knowing which way is up or which way is in or out or up or down. Yeah, I can imagine. I... Yeah. Okay. So when it was, so we're talking about how we wrote this this week, um, because I, this is one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have this call with you and just to sort of get your perspective on it and share it with people. Cause I think it's interesting. I, yeah, we said that we were a bit nervous to write this week about such a contentious issue and me doubly nervous because I didn't have the on the ground experience that you did. Um, so my sort of way of approaching that was to kind of really think about how, reading everything that we read and consume about the conflict made me feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's almost, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a cop out, but it's easy to feel that way. Cause I don't know. I can just put my hands up and say, I'm ignorant. So I'm interested right. in, in so it, does, does that feeling go away after three years there? Like I can easily say, I don't know which side to believe. I don't know what side I come down on. I feel for both sides, but I also think both sides are, you know, but, but, but I can do that. You've been there for three years. You're an expert apparently. So do you, like what do you do? Yeah, that's a great question because I think I've what I've done is actually sort of like decided to completely disengage <laughs> with the issue either way because I think it just brought back so much um, memories of being talked at with the narratives that we were talking about by both sides, you know, like both sides wanting to show me, hey, this is why we've got these sort of – it's almost like every conversation I had there – 
almost every conversation I had there turned out to be a sort of pitch, you know, uh, to persuade me that their claims were legitimate and that their narrative is correct. And so mm. I sort of left there holding these two narratives in my head and trying to reconcile them and say, well, uh, yes, this is true, but then the opposite is true. And then so it sort of ended up being this endless mental exercise of countering arguments and then countering counter arguments, which was just exhausting, to be honest. Um, and so my, I think when we came to writing this piece, one of part of me was like, <laughs> to sort of like yeah. go back into that world. But then once you're in it, you just get sucked in because you kind of have this pull to um, bottom out on some basic issues that you think that the world should understand and that they should know, um, which I don't think right. that we were saying mainstream media really does a good job of telling, right? Because it's always, things are so politicized. Every word they choose to put in the headlines can either sort of be, be kind of interpreted to be pitching for one um, team or the other, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But, but, I, but I, I also think you've healed something very interesting there that you're someone who has genuine knowledge like you know facts are facts and you you have you you're saying i've been there i know what it looks like i know i've talked to people who are affected by it i have this ex deep ex well, compared to 99 percent of people on the planet you have a deep experience in the issue and your response to it is to it disengage and it would have been my response too because in the in the maelstrom of of like are you pro-palestinian are you pro-israeli which is kind of what i what i wrote about which was kind of like if you're not one of those things, do you not care? Like, what, what's wrong with you? You have to pick a side. And here right, you're telling me, right. you know, someone who, who knows more than almost everybody else does on this stuff goes, I have to disengage, which means we lose the voices that we most, like that people most need. The people who say, yeah, well, you know what? It's pretty tough. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here. Like, and you're right. left with people who either have a very, very strong opinion and know what they're talking about, but, you know, have a very strong opinion or people who have strong opinions and have no idea what they're fucking talking about. And I just feel <laughs> right. like I mean, you, you can then, you, you can expand that across any real issue that you want to talk about in, in the world today. But I just, I think that was a really, I just wanted to ask you that question because I think it's a really interesting insight to say like people who are most qualified to have, have opinions tend not to have them, which means that we don't hear them. Yeah. And you know, I was, um, my contemporaries or my colleagues who had worked on those issues with me around that time, anecdotally, I know they've told me that they feel the same way, that they've like disengaged because it's just too much. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, sorry. I, and I don't mean to trivialize it. I know people who are living the realities of that there day in, day out. Um, it's a really tough time for everyone there right now. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about the sort of uh, persistence of like the, the Israel-Palestinian conflict that just gets people kind of going both hands up. Uh, I'm done. I need to tap out from this for for a period of time. Um, but so what do you, you, if you don't if you don't have if you don't have a dog in that fight? What do you you can't you can't win, right? Like you can't win with by saying, oh, I mean, I mean. I expect that we'll get lots of comments about our piece this week, which will say you're wrong, you're blah, 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 blah. So like we're only going to attract, yeah. a, you know, attract negative attention. So uh, it's easy just to like yeah. not do it, which again is why we were almost not going to write about it because it's just easier not to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
And I think, I mean, just to sort of move on to a different point, John, I think we we had talked about this in our brainstorm is that people are sort of talking about the situation up here, and I've got my hand above my head, um, when actually the facts on the ground are very different and, and moving very quickly to what international law and these sort of international structures and agreements had been put in place, uh, you know, back in 2003 with the Oslo Accords, right? Things, oh, sorry, 1993. Is it 1993? <laughs> Well, anyway, regardless, with the with the Oslo Accords, things have changed. Yeah, I think I think ninety three. Ninety three. Yes, that's right. Clinton days, um, Arafat. But you know, things have moved on, um, and there are a lot of commentators and sort of you know people sitting in the ivory towers in DC and the think tanks who comment about this situation, uh, but don't actually recognise that <clears throat> everyone's dealing with a very different set of um, facts on the ground. And um, how do you sort of and then it becomes a chicken and egg, as we were saying, like, do you then say, oh, okay, well, because one party's cheated on, you know, their promise to do this, then therefore we should shift the goalposts and change the rules of the game. Um, or do you then say, okay, well, this is the reality. We'll take a realist approach to this and say that we just need to deal with this situation as is. Um, and then what does that look like, right? Because Israel as an economy, as an OECD country, it's going to be okay. Like, I think it just wants to be, it doesn't have to deal with, the Palestinian issue in the same pressing way that the Palestinians feel the need to address their occupation. You know, like I think everything is in place now for is obviously Israel's got the upper hand um, and this whole sort of, these sort of Hamas and Gaza, um, I guess like tensions that boil over every couple of years, every few years is um, it just an inconvenience in some ways, you know, for them to, for the, for the Israeli security establishment to deal with. And I don't mean to belittle it. I know I keep saying that, mm -hmm. but really I don't, it's not sort of, I know that the human lives there, it's a huge, huge, huge disruption to people in <clears throat> living in Israel and obviously distraction for people in Gaza as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could, I think that's a good point to leave it. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And it's, um, um, and I, I said to you, Oh, I'd love to have a phone call with you just 10, 15 minutes to like record something about how you felt about this piece. Cause I think you've got a lot of experience here. We are at 20 something minutes. Typically, like when you get two lawyers in a room to talk, it, it never ends. So, um, let's, let's save everybody else's time, um, and leave it there, but, uh, not bad chatting to you. Yeah. Great. Great. Great job. Man. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye. You good? Okay. Hey, what's up? Did I freeze? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Are we good? Did you not hear me say, hey, what's up? No, I did not hear you say, what's up? You did hear me <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll say it again. <laughs> we'll leave this in.